J.D. Vance, in his own words. I'm a never-Trump guy. I never liked him. I can't stomach Trump. I think that he's noxious. On Twitter, Vance called Trump, quote, reprehensible, an idiot. Yeah, that's right, right? I mean, that's, is that wrong? Oh, but then... J.D. smelled which way the wind was blowing off the porta potty that is today's Republican Party. J.D.'s previous opinions, he says, were stupid. All of us say stupid things, and I happen to say stupid things very publicly. Which is really a great qualification for a future senator. Yes, actually it is. For a Republican U.S. senator, that's right, Jimmy. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you Yeah! From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Pennsylvania, in Lancaster, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Burden Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Your mileage may vary. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Um, On Tuesday, the 2022 midterm primary season got underway in earnest with statewide primaries in Ohio and Indiana kicking off a month of primaries here in May in about a dozen or more different states following uh, just one last month in Texas, the first in the nation on March 1 in Desi's old home state. Yes. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. I don't, lots blame, of... I don't blame you. <laughs> but yeah, I was going to say lots of ballots were discarded. Yeah, th- in fact, tens of thousands of uh, absentee ballots from perfectly legal, often long-time elderly absentee voters were rejected in the state under under Texas's new voter suppression law, but that was last month. Do we have to keep looking forward instead of, or back, instead of looking forward, Desi Doyle? Yes, let's look forward to all of the other new ballots that will be discarded in Republican states. So cynical, so bitter. <laughs> it's it's so sad. Anyway, uh, happily, I, I haven't yet seen reports, I should note, of similar voter suppression At least not yet in either Ohio or Indiana today following Tuesday's primary, though there were problems with, you guessed it, 
Touchscreen voting systems in at least three counties across Ohio, where for some reason in all three, they still force voters to vote on these 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen computer ballot marking devices or BMDs. These systems that also rely on electronic poll book computers for checking voters in so that voters can vote at all. And, by the way, they all work great. <laughs> don't laugh at me. They all work great as long as you you know don't mind unverifiable elections. And, by the way, as long as any of the way too many computers involved in the entire process all work, don't fail, and are all programmed correctly. What could possibly go wrong? Well... Unfortunately, in at least three separate counties in Ohio on Tuesday, Lucas County, that's home of Toledo, Cuyahoga County, home of Cleveland, and the much smaller Williams County, in those uh, counties, the computers apparently were not programmed correctly. Whether they recorded votes as cast, where voters were able to cast those uh, those votes, uh, well, that's pretty much anyone's guess, as even when these touchscreen systems work correctly as designed, nobody can actually know if they actually reflect the intent of the voters after the election ends. That sort of seems like a problem to me, has seemed like a problem to me for years, seems like it should be even more of a problem now, now that, oh, I don't know, about half the country has questions about the accuracy of results of elections, whether they have evidence to support their concerns or not. Well, uh, there was a, a Democratic congressional primary closely watched by some progressives on Tuesday in Ohio's 11th congressional district, which, by the way, happens to touch parts of both Lucas County and Cuyahoga County. So, according to uh, WTVG in Toledo, Ohio, on Tuesday, leaders with the Lucas County Board of Elections say they experienced issues, issues... No, it's just issues. ...with ballots on primary election day. According to a statement from the Lucas County Board of Elections, there was an issue with electronic poll books due to an error with the vendor named 10x the electronic poll book printed the incorrect barcode on the ballot card okay so uh the way this works is uh with these particular systems in lucas county ohio is that when you check in to vote your voter registration is looked up on the e-poll book, and if you are properly registered, the system then prints out a ballot card with a barcode on it that includes the, uh, the party whose primary you're choosing to vote in and your, uh, your proper district, etc., that you're allowed to vote in. That card is then placed into another computer, a voting computer that presents... Based on the barcode, it presents a ballot on the screen for voters to select their favorite candidates in their party's primary. The voter then makes their selections, and those selections are printed out as another barcode onto that ballot card. Most such systems will print the names 
in uh, in readable text of these selected candidates on the card. Some voters will check those names to make sure the computer got it correct. Most of those voters were unable to notice if the system has actually printed the wrong name or left a race off the ballot card entirely, as studies have shown. But in any event, uh, after that, another computer of uh, or the same one will then read that print that newly printed out barcode, which cannot be verified by the voters to record the voters supposed selections contained in that barcode. Got it. In other words, the computer reads the barcode as the actual votes and there's no way the voter can check whether the barcode is correct. Correct. So if that sounds overly complicated, well, it is. Welcome (laughs) to the world of American elections in uh, counties which apparently hate their voters so much they don't allow them to vote on a simple hand-marked paper ballot at the polling place. Which, which can be verified after the election is over. Correct. Which, by the way, you know, not allowing voters to use simple hand-marked paper ballots uh, is a fantastic way to leave voters suspicious about the voting systems and whether their votes are recorded as cast. Not that any of that has ever been any kind of problem in this country any time recently. <laughs> of course, those are the concerns when the system works as designed which they did not on Tuesday in Lucas County. As explained by the Lucas County Board of Elections Director, LaVera Scott, uh, on Tuesday, uh, who explained that the poll books had been misprogrammed to print ballot card barcodes that included the wrong party for each ballot, it would, uh, she said it would have the party that you chose written on the card itself, But when it was getting inserted into the voting machine, it was for some reason bringing up the opposite party ballot, she said. Poll workers were instructed to use backup procedures that apparently include workers going with the voter to the voting machine, manually choosing the correct party and the correct precinct for the voters. At least hopefully they did that correctly. Some years ago, I should note, voting while I was voting on a similar system here in Los Angeles, the poll workers actually punched in the wrong uh, precinct into my machine, which meant that four of my own 12 votes on that primary ballot were misprinted on the ballot card. Luckily, uh, even though at the time most of these systems were only used by blind voters, I'm not blind, so I was able to look at what was printed out, and because I'm not blind, I noticed that it had the wrong votes for who I was in the for the 12 races I was trying to vote in. I was then given a plain hand-marked paper ballot to vote on instead because the workers could not figure out what the problem was and the L.A. County Registrar had to quarantine that particular machine, had to do a whole forensic uh, study on it to figure out what went wrong after the election. And basically what we learned was that the, uh, uh, the poll worker had punched in the wrong number into the system. So hopefully they were able to do it correctly in Lucas County with this problem. Who knows? As WTVG notes, uh, voters with concerns uh, about all of this were allowed to ask for a paper ballot. That would be a regular emergency hand-marked paper ballot begging the question as to why voters weren't just given those in the first place. 
Uh, anyway, uh, by Tuesday afternoon, uh, the Lucas County Board of Elections issued an update that the vendor had corrected the problem, that error. Of course, how many chose uh, not to vote by then? How many were left wondering if the system worked at all? Again, not that that's ever been any sort of problem in <laughs> recent days in this country. Who knows? Republican Secretary of State Frank LaRose issued a statement on social media Tuesday saying his office was aware of the, quote, potential check-in issues and was working with county boards to fix it. LaRose, who was also on the primary ballot on Tuesday and he won his election after uh, saying that there were very, very serious questions about the 2020 uh, election, even though there was no fraud in the state of Ohio. He was trying to play it both ways. Apparently it worked. And he won his primary. Uh, anyway, LaRose said uh, no, no voters should be turned away due to the issues that occurred. The Lucas Board of Elections tweeted, however, at 2 p.m. on Tuesday that the vendor error had been corrected and that back procedures had correctly recorded that votes uh, had, had correctly recorded uh, the votes that had been cast during the interim. So the problem, nonetheless, was in place until 2 p.m. on Election Day, which seems to me to be a much bigger problem across Lucas County. It's a big county, Toledo, Ohio. Seems like a much bigger problem than the media has been reporting this as or has been you know, sort of characterizing this. As they do, as we often criticize them for, you know, uh, talking about computer glitches and hiccups and snags and snafus. These are actually failures which result in people having their votes lost. And yes, if you're sick of hearing about this on the broadcast, imagine how sick I am of reporting it. <laughs> All of these years, year after year, election after election. Uh, the uh, uh, LaRose confirmed that the uh, secretary uh, LaRose confirmed the ballot issues happened in Lucas County and Cuyahoga County, which is an even bigger county. That's where Cleveland is. It's unclear uh, how many other counties were impacted. WTVG reports the Williams County Board of Elections said that it experienced problems providing voters with the right ballots at all of their polling locations in the county on Tuesday. The Board of Elections there said officials were printing printing new ballots there to correct the issue, but it led to delays in people being able to vote at all. For example, Jeannie Gordon according to WKSU, voted in Cuyahoga County's Cleveland Heights. She said the confusion did make her a little concerned about whether or not her vote would be counted properly. By the time I'd got there, she said, they had kind of figured it out, but it was confusing. They were stressed. It took a significantly longer time than it should, said Gordon. And I guess I should add here, luckily, this was just a primary election in a midterm year. So turnout was lower than it might have otherwise been in a general election, particularly a presidential general election. Michael Hirschman said that he didn't uh, he, he didn't seem to mind the second trip he had to make to the polling place after the Board of Elections said the issues were quickly resolved, as WKSU reported it, notoriously downplaying the issue, uh, you know, for voters due to these 
totally avoidable problems. Hirschman said, quote, I'm like, you know what, I'll go back to work and then literally just got back from there about 20 minutes ago and it was smooth sailing, not a problem. Not a problem, apparently, for Michael Hirschman, who was not only able to get to the polls on a work day, but was able to get there twice, going back to work and then coming back to the polls. Lucky Michael Hirschman. Many voters are not quite as lucky. If anyone was unable to vote as a result of the problem, the Board of Elections asked them then to return before the polls closed at 7.30 p.m. to cast their ballot. You know, easy peasy. Now, uh, please note, uh, this is the first of two primaries that Ohio will be holding this year, so they'll have a, another chance to get it right. The state will have a separate primary for Ohio House and Senate seats later this year, thanks to the delays in adopting new maps approved by the Republican-majority Ohio Redistricting Commission after the 2010, uh, 2020 census. Those maps were repeatedly ruled unconstitutional by the Ohio Supreme Court, uh, as were the U.S. House maps that were used on Tuesday anyway. They were also found unconstitutional by the Ohio Supreme Court several times, Nonetheless, they were used uh, on Tuesday after Republicans went to a, f a friendly federal court and got permission to use these newly gerrymandered maps that the state Supreme Court said they could not use because they violated the state constitution. The matter will be, no worries though, uh, the matter will be sorted out in theory before the 2024 elections. For now, Ohio is going ahead and using the unconstitutional, unlawful, U.S. House District maps. Gosh, that's too bad for the voters that they didn't see fit to fix the problem before they vote. The uh, These new unconstitutional maps that they used on Tuesday, by the way, will give Republicans likely a 13 to 2 or maybe 12 to 3 advantage in their U.S. House delegation, even though Ohio voters back in 2015 in a ballot referendum voted by more than 70% that uh, district maps for both the U.S. House and the state legislative districts must closely resemble the statewide partisan balance of the state, which is about 54 Republican, 46 Democrat or so. Obviously, a much closer partisan split than the 13 to 2 or 12 to 3 U.S. House maps that the GOP's packed federal courts are allowing the state to use this year, as uh, gerrymandering expert David Daly uh, explained last week, I think it was, on this program, and I spoke with him again about this uh, via email this morning. The state, in fact, lost one House seat this year following the 2020 census, and the new map, Daily tells me, is, quote, a little more gerrymandered than the uh, than the, the previous map, the, pre the well, I guess still in place, uh, the current 12 to 4 map that has been used over the past 10 years. He said it certainly... Since they lost the seat, it certainly takes away the lost seat from the Democrats, he notes. And as I always note in these cases, it's not until days or weeks or even months after elections before uh, some problems are actually discovered in these voting systems. But for now, those three counties uh, seem to be the biggest problems for voters on Tuesday in Ohio, at least that I have heard of. So far, uh, as to one of the uh, few districts left where Democrats actually do have a chance of winning, 
There was one primary that was closely watched by at least some progressives on Tuesday in the 11th Congressional District, as I mentioned, uh, which touches both Lucas and Cuyahoga counties where these uh, where these problems were reported. With a fraction of the fanfare that accompanied her first dramatic win during a special election in the Buckeye State last August, Ohio Congresswoman Chantel Brown, a Cleveland-area Democrat, reportedly won her primary election on Tuesday, virtually assuring her a full term in Congress, according to Huffington Post, representing Northeast Ohio's predominantly Democratic 11th Congressional District. Brown has now defeated former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, a Bernie Sanders acolyte and a favorite of many progressives, uh, has now defeated Turner for the second time. Brown previously defeated uh, Turner in last summer's special election to fill the seat that was vacated by former Congresswoman Marsha Fudge. She was tapped by President Joe Biden to serve as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. While few political scientists were surprised about the outcome of the election on Tuesday, one noted, quote, if a progressive candidate couldn't win during a special election in an open seat, there was no way they were going to pull it out with an incumbent member of Congress. There were reasons for Turner to hold out some degree of hope during a second run. However, the district's new boundaries in these unlawful maps include the progressive Cleveland suburb of Lakewood and uh, low turnout might have given additional weight to Turner's base of highly motivated, motivated left left leaning voters, as HuffPost describes it. But uh, as uh, Huff's, HuffPost Daniel Marin notes, the bar is always higher for a candidate asking voters to expel an incumbent which uh, Chantel Brown now is, and Brown simply did not do enough to disappoint voters during her first five months in office. She became a reliable vote for Joe Biden, who returned the favor by making Brown his second endorsement of the midterm election. She even ingratiated herself with the party's progressive wing. Uh, when she originally ran, she was uh, criticized as not nearly progressive enough. She successfully was able to... Um, uh, be admitted to the Congressional Progressive Caucus. She received an endorsement from the bloc's political action committee here in this uh, in this primary on Tuesday. In addition, Brown received big money backing for her run, including from the Israel lobby as the 11th district in Ohio is home to the largest Jewish community in the state. By contrast, Turner Nina Turner came to the table with fewer political assets this time around than during her first run last year when a veritable army of national progressives contributed to her campaign. She raised a fraction of the money that she had during the special election. And despite the endorsement of her loyal ally, Bernie Sanders, and a last minute blessing from Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and a six figure infusion from the left leaning rebellion pack. That was not enough, apparently. Uh, remember, none of these numbers have been verified as of today. Uh, anyway, uh, some votes cast on a computer ballot marking devices will never be uh, verified. But it was not enough to make the difference. As reported, the results are not even close, with Brown trouncing Turner 66 to 44 percent as of the tally today, with more than 95 percent of the vote in. 
Turner, in a fiery concession speech, seemed to hint, actually, she almost said it pretty directly, that she was uh, going to be making a run, potentially, for president in 2024. A progressive run, perhaps as an independent candidate. So we may be hearing more from Nina Turner in the future. Uh, Meanwhile, not focusing much on voting problems or on Democratic dust-ups on Tuesday, the corporate media found plenty of time over the past 24 hours to focus on Republican contests, specifically Donald Trump's endorsements in both Ohio and Indiana as a test to whether Trump still holds a kingmaker status in the Republican Party. If Tuesday's reported results are any indication from the GOP side of the primary, well, spoiler alert, yes, Trump still does hold the kingmaker status for good or ill, depending on how you might look at it. The most closely watched Republican contest on Tuesday was the GOP nomination for the open U.S. Senate seat in Ohio, being vacated by retiring Republican Rob Portman, who chose not to seek a third term. In that race, it was this guy who reportedly won after recently receiving Trump's endorsement. As somebody who doesn't like Trump, myself, the elites were right about Donald Trump, right? I'm a never Trump guy. I never liked him. I can't stomach Trump. I think that he's noxious and is leading the white working class to a very dark place. I take it you're not a Trump supporter from what I've read. Am I right? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah I didn't vote for Trump. So, uh, yeah, that was J.D. Vance, hillbilly elegy author J.D. Vance back in 2016 or so, when clearly he was a never Trumper. But this was J.D. Vance after he decided recently that he wanted to run for the U.S. Senate as a Republican in Ohio. He's the best president of my lifetime, and he revealed the corruption in this country like nobody else. I think that he was a good president. I think he made a lot of good decisions for people. All around, he was a great president. I'm 37 years old. Certainly the best president of my lifetime. So there you go. Uh, That's what it takes, apparently, uh, (laughs) to get elected in today's Republican Party. And apparently that was enough to win Donald Trump's endorsement. He was Vance was not leading until he received that endorsement a couple of weeks ago. I believe I think he was pulling third in what was a seven person race in Ohio for the U.S. Senate nomination behind his main competitors, Josh Mandel who's run about two or three times for the U.S. Senate, never wins in Ohio, and Matt Dolan. Uh, On Sunday, before Election Day this past week, Trump was in Nebraska stumping for a gubernatorial candidate there, yet another one of many that he has endorsed to date who have been accused of things like domestic violence and sexual assault. In this case, it was for a man named Charlie Herbster, who's running for Nebraska governor with Trump's endorsement. Uh, even though he has been accused of sexual assaulting multiple women. I'm talking about Herbster in this case, in case you're confused, (laughs) not talking about Trump. Well, it applies to both. Uh, In any case, Trump found time uh, in Nebraska to uh, uh, call out his support for J.D. Vance, sort of. His endorsed favorite for Ohio's U.S. Senate race sounded like this. That's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for one race. You know, we've endorsed Dr. Oz. We've endorsed... JP, right? JD Mandel, and he's doing great. They're all doing good. Actually, no, uh, Mr. Former President, you uh, you you have endorsed JP Vance. I'm sorry. Now he's confused me. 
<laughs> J.D. Vance, not J.D.J.P. Mandel. In any event, the endorsement, whether Trump could say the guy's name or not, appears to have worked. Vance is said to have defeated Mandel by about 32 to 24 percent. With the others, uh, uh, yeah, over Mandel, 32 to 24%. The others bringing up the rear. In fact, reportedly all, all of Trump's candidates won in Ohio and Indiana on Tuesday. Several dozen of them. Even if many of them were already incumbents or they were running unopposed in their primaries, that did not stop Trump from endorsing them. He went out of his way to endorse folks that he knew would win. Because, you know, that's what his ego is about. Among them, former Trump aide Max Miller won the Republican nomination for U.S. House in Ohio's uh, 7th Congressional District. Miller is an accused domestic abuser, according to 538's Nathaniel Rakich, who says he will nonetheless almost certainly be elected to Congress this fall in this particular district, which runs about 14 uh, percent in favor of Republicans in Ohio's ninth district, one of the few held by a Democrat, January 6 riot attendee J.R. Majewski. He appears to have won as well. He will face incumbent Democrat Marcy Kaptur in November. Her race may have just become a bit easier, maybe with Majewski as her opponent. In any event, it was certainly a good day for Trump's ego, at least, whether that turns out to be good news for Republican candidates and their party this November, with so many of them winning their nominations by winning Trump's endorsement by declaring that the 2020 election was stolen from him, despite any evidence in support of that claim. Well, that remains to be seen this November. I've mentioned and I will continue to do so, I suspect that, you know, while conventional wisdom suggests Democrats are going to take a thumping at the ballot box this November and that that could be true. These are decidedly not conventional times. So, uh, you know, we have seen Republicans blow easy wins in recent years in no small part by nominating far right loons in contests that they might have easily won otherwise. And they seem to be on their way to doing the same thing this year in a bunch of places. We'll see. It's early in the primary season, but so far so good. Uh, Add to that the fact that the uh, GOP's stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court appears set to overturn the wildly popular landmark Roe v. Wade protection of abortion rights that even many Republican voters uh, oppose them doing. Those are just some of the many unpredictable X factors that are going to have an effect on this year's critical midterm elections about six months from now, some of which we don't even know about yet. Others I want to try to catch up a bit with in our next segment, since we've been uh, buried in the war in Ukraine and the leaked Supreme Court opinion on Roe v. Wade over the past couple of days. We've got a lot to catch up with. Uh, but point being, you know, while the odds are certainly against Democrats, according to history, the party in power generally takes a beating during the midterms. I think it's a mistake to presume we know anything about what will happen this November. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back with a few more X factors, including news out of North Carolina on the challenged congressional candidacy 
of accused insurrectionist Congressman Madison Cawthorn and uh, a bit of uh, Trump accountability that may have gotten a bit lost among the crush of news over the past several days. Stay tuned for that. And Desi, by the way, Desi Doyen's (laughs) latest Green News report. Yay, finally. All ahead on today's broadcast, I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Nothing could be finer than to be in Carolina in the morning. Yeah. No one could Welcome be back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I got to tell you, it's like running uphill in quicksand these days, trying to <laughs> trying to keep up with it all. Uh, we're doing the best we can. I, you know, I, I can't tell for certain, but I... Um, I think this story suggests some possibly good news and maybe even, yeah, one of those X factors I mentioned in the last segment, which uh, I, I believe makes it a fool's errand at this point anyway to try to predict how all of this may uh, may break down this November. As you know, we've been covering closely on this program the challenges by voters in several different states supported by the constitutional law experts at Free Speech for People who are challenging the eligibility of these candidates to be on the ballot this year, who are uh, you know, running for House in Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona, and for Secretary of State in Arizona. The, uh, these uh, members of Congress who appear to have engaged in one way or another uh, in the January 6, 2021 Trump-incited insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Having done so, that would be a violation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which bars those who have taken the oath of office from being able to hold office after, quote, engaging in rebellion or insurrection or, quote, given aid and comfort to those who did. One of the accused members of Congress, who we discussed recently with uh, Free Speech for People founder and constitutional law expert John Bonifaz, is Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. She was forced to answer questions under oath about her participation in the insurrection about a week or two ago after a federal court found that she must do so. That uh, federal judge rejected the claim in her federal lawsuit that the Amnesty Act of 1872 somehow not only gave amnesty when it comes to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to members of the Confederacy, that's who it was originally written for, but also to any future insurrectionist or uh, rebels for all time. The federal judge in Georgia, at least, did not buy that claim. In North Carolina, and so uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene had to ask, answer these questions, but in North Carolina, a, a Trump-appointed federal judge did buy that ridiculous claim and decided that Congressman Madison Cawthorn, who's also facing a constitutional eligibility challenge to his candidacy in North Carolina, uh, he did not have to sit down and answer questions under oath. 
as his attorney argued that it's not up to the state to decide who is eligible to be on the ballot, but it's up to Congress to decide who is eligible to be seated in Congress. We spoke with uh, Free Speech for People's senior attorney, Ron Fine, about that challenge on this show some weeks ago when he announced that the group was, in fact, filing an emergency appeal on behalf of the voters in North Carolina to that federal court judge's ruling. Ron Fine told me that it was a ridiculous ruling, that it would mean a 14-year-old could run for office and the state couldn't do anything about it, despite the age requirements in the U.S. Constitution that would otherwise bar a 14-year-old from from running. Yeah, and uh, most absurdly, that the 14-year-old would have to win first for then Congress to then say, no, you can't do this. Exactly. Which is ridiculous. Well, uh, apparently not to this Trump-appointed federal judge in North Carolina who bought that argument. Well, on Tuesday, the challengers had their day in court before a three-judge federal appeals panel. And it was kind of amazing, as CNN reported it on Tuesday. A lawyer for embattled GOP Congressman Madison Cawthorn argued in federal court that states can't enforce basic age or residency requirements for congressional candidates, let alone enforce a constitutional ban against insurrectionists from holding office. James Bopp Jr. pushed his maximalist view at a hearing of the Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is reviewing the lower court order that had shut down the uh, candidacy challenge filed by Several of Cawthorn's constituents in North Carolina, their challenge tried to block Cawthorn from running for re-election because of the Civil War era disqualification clause in the 14th Amendment. Overall, the three-judge appeals panel appeared to agree with the challengers here that there were, in fact, some issues with the lower court ruling that might need to be corrected at the appellate level. The crux of Bopp's argument, as CNN reported on Tuesday, while we were all sort of buried in what had happened at the Supreme Court, uh, the the crux of, of the argument from Cawthorn's defense attorney was that only Congress can judge the qualifications of its members that based on Article One of the Constitution. And this forces state election officials to sit on the sidelines entirely while blatantly ineligible candidates run for and even win seats in Congress. This is the argument that Bopp was making. The proper time for adjudication, he said, is after the election, but before the members are sworn in. And here's where it actually gets amazing. (laughs) Judge James Wynn asked at this hearing on Tuesday, quote, Let's say you want to run for office at 12 years old or something like that. The state can't do anything. You've got to wait until Congress says they can't run. Uh, Bop's uh, Cawthorn's attorney, uh, Bop, who is also Marjorie Taylor Greene's attorney. He also works for Donald Trump, by the way. He replied, quote, I can't help what the Constitution says. So. Yeah, he's saying that's right. A 12 year old can run for Congress, even though that does not meet the constitutional requirement for Congress. But no state can do anything about it, apparently, other than let them run. And if they win, as Desi says, let Congress decide later if they can be seated or not, if Congress feels like it. 
That argument was embraced seemingly by another judge on this appellate panel. Judge Julius Richardson, and you'll never guess who appointed him. <laughs> yes, an appointee of former President Donald Trump said, quote, hey, it's what the Constitution says. But Judge Wynn, uh, who was appointed by former President Barack Obama, pointed out that there isn't any precedent from any previous cases where judges adopted Bopp's view on this particular topic. Bopp said the same rationale also applied to residency requirements. States routinely and without controversy will disqualify candidates for state or federal office because they do not meet basic restrictions about residency, citizenship status, age, if they have a criminal record, etc., when asked Bop, uh, Judge Wynn asked Bop uh, during the hearing, quote, somebody from South Carolina can file to run for any seat they want in North Carolina, never having lived there a day in their life. And there's nothing that North Carolina can do about it or a court can do about it until it goes to Congress. Bop said, well, Congress can do something about it. The voters can do something about it. Come on. You think somebody's going to run from South Carolina and get elected in North Carolina? Come on. That's really Cawthorn's uh, Madison Cawthorn's argument here. Sure, he may, he may be an insurrectionist in violation of the Constitution, but even if so, it's not up to the states to decide uh, or, you know, to decide that or any other qualification stated in the Constitution. Uh, this after uh, the federal district judge in March, another one, yes, appointed by Trump, uh, the federal district judge in North Carolina blocked the state board of elections from processing this challenge to Cawthorn, claiming that the Amnesty Act of 1872 gave amnesty to all Confederate soldiers to run for Congress and to Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene, etc., more than 150 years in the future. Thus, by the way, nullifying the entire uh, insurrectionist disqualification clause in the Constitution by way of legislation, which is not the way you abolish constitutional amendments. The challengers argued that the district judge uh, improperly protected Cawthorn by misreading that amnesty law. One of the attorneys for the challengers, Presley Millen, noted that uh, they believe, quote, the lower district court was wrong based on the plain language of the Amnesty Act of 1872. Based on the context and the history, the legislative history, later congressional interpretations, as well as logic and common sense. Several prominent constitutional scholars uh, and the federal judge I mentioned back in Georgia who oversaw the uh, Green-related, uh, some of the Green-related pr proceedings, uh, said that the district judge in North Carolina wrongly applied the Amnesty Act of 1872 to Cawthorn because the law only shielded ex-Confederates. And as Bonifats told us on this show from Free Speech for People, if nothing else, if nothing else happens at this point, the federal judge's approval in Georgia for Marjorie Taylor Greene to sit down and answer questions under oath in a court 
quote, opens the door for, yes, Donald Trump to have to do the very same thing about his involvement in the insurrection if he chooses to run for office again, at least if he wants to be on the Georgia ballot. We are still waiting for a decision from the Georgia administrative law judge um, who oversaw the questioning of Marjorie Taylor Greene as to whether he will recommend uh, that Georgia's Republican secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, remove Greene from the ballot. That'll be left up to Raffensperger after the judge makes his recommendation. Uh, As to the challenge in federal court in Cawthorn's case, Well, the appeals court did not say when it will issue its decision. The GOP primary in North Carolina is May 17. Mm. So that's coming up in a week or two. But the challengers there have said that they will continue their fight through the general election if necessary. If the appeals court agrees with the challengers here, Cawthorn would then presumably have to sit down to answer questions before a panel on the North Carolina State Board of Elections under oath about his involvement with the insurrection. Uh, And then they will make a determination about whether he is lawfully on the ballot. What really strikes me about the particularly bat crazy bat crap crap, crazy arguments in North Carolina is it's a sign of just how far these Republicans are willing to go to dismantle election law constitutional law constitutional standards and and doesn't even show you the depths uh, how low they will sink and what how far they will go which is just really disturbing and remember these folks have been packed onto the federal bench all across I mean you see what happened with the lower court ruling in North Carolina with Cawthorn well there's another Trump lawyer who's sitting on the appellate court uh, hearing the appeal saying well that's what it says in the Constitution I guess there's nothing we can do about it so uh, yeah that's that's the place we're in that's the place we're in A few other, well, maybe one other uh, Trump accountability stories uh, here before we get to Desi's latest Green News report. Uh, You know, stories like this, which may or may not provide some of those X factors for this November's election. At the height uh, of the nationwide protests over the police murder of George Floyd, then-President Donald Trump asked if authorities could simply shoot the Black Lives Matter protesters who had taken to the streets in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere, according to Trump's own former defense secretary, Mark Esper. His memoir was quoted this week by Axios, quote, Can't you just shoot them? Just shoot them in the legs or something? Trump asked of the protesters, according to Esper's account in his new book. On January 1, 2020, for example, protesters around Lafayette Square near the White House were cleared by law enforcement so that Trump and several senior administration officials could stage their now infamous photo op in front of a church during which Trump showed off a Bible by holding it upside down for the camera. Esper was among those officials at the time. Trump's question, Esper reportedly writes in his new memoir, Uh, came that same week. According to Axios, he wrote uh, that it, quote, was surreal sitting in front of the resolute desk in the off in the Oval Office with this idea weighing heavily in the air. And the president red faced and complaining loudly about the protest underway in Washington, D.C., this idea hanging weighing heavily in the air was whether or not the president could order Americans to be shot 
for protesting, whether he couldn't simply order the military to shoot them. And yes, uh, that's just one reason why I find it so appalling that Republicans are still embracing Trump to this day, falling over themselves to win his endorsement, claiming the 2020 election was stolen when they know damn well it was not stolen. They want to be on the side of the guy who is ordering Americans to be shot for protesting peacefully as they try to... Uh, as as these members uh, try to you know take back majority control of both chambers of Congress this year, and the White House once again in 2024, if they can pull it off, if the twice impeached guy who incited an insurrection to try and overturn the U.S. government in order to steal the 2020 election, if he's going to be their candidate once again, or frankly, even if he is not their candidate, but it's a better one, a more accomplished authoritarian like Florida's Ron DeSantis who has yet to condemn Trump for trying to steal a presidential election with a deadly attack on the Capitol and much more. I'm sure he's not going to condemn him for discussing the idea of shooting protesters. The uh, Trump's former defense secretary, Mark Esper, writes the good news. This was not a difficult decision. Oh, good. The bad news, he notes, is that I quote, I had to figure out a way to walk Trump back to keep him from ordering that American protesters be shot without creating the mess that I was trying to avoid, he said, Esper said. On June 1, when they cleared Lafayette Square, authorities did not use live ammo to clear the crowd. They used tear gas, however, against the peaceful protesters. That show of force came after reports that Trump had <laughs> hidden in a White House bunker uh, a few days prior in response to those protests because authoritarian tyrants also tend to be cowards. Donald Trump certainly is. All right, uh, more Trump accountability news, we're, but we're going to have to get to it on another show, <laughs> sorry to say, because we've got to take a quick break. We will not push you off another moment, Desi Good. Doyen. The Green News Report is next right here on the broadcast, filled with nothing but good news. Not so much. Mm. Don't go away. <laughs> I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Now that I told them uh, there's nothing but terrible news in the Green News Report, <laughs> uh, nobody's listening at this point, Des. So you can just go ahead and say that FCC uh, disallowed word if you want, because nobody's listening. We scared them all off. They, they should not listen to your latest Green News Report. Many of those affected by the heat Local workers without a lot of options. Unprecedented heat in India and Pakistan is testing the limits of human survivability. The fate of reptiles is wrapped up with the fate of many other species. 20% of the world's reptiles at risk of extinction thanks to humans. Plus, 
Good news, mass extinction in the oceans can be avoided by cutting fossil fuels. That's the good news? That's the good news. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The most trusted news source in America is the Weather Channel. With 52% of Americans trusting it, while the other 48% rely on the second most trusted name in weather, the window. (laughs) This is your Green News Report. That's 24 hours. Yeah, you look out there. Always accurate. Okay, Desi Doyne, I know you warned us about this last week. It's still going on in India and Pakistan. Yes, and it's getting even worse. An unprecedented weeks-long heat wave is still gripping India and Pakistan, setting new all-time monthly records. Pakistan just saw its hottest April ever recorded, with some areas hitting 121 degrees Fahrenheit over the weekend. The heat is causing power outages, school closures, and crop damage. Heat-related illnesses have spiked. Many people in both regions lack air conditioning, and high electricity demand has triggered widespread stifling blackouts. It is so hot in India that at least one of Delhi's biggest landfills spontaneously combusted. The UN World Meteorological Organization linked the intense heat to climate change, saying that the temperatures in India and Pakistan are, quote, consistent with what we expect in a changing climate, making heat waves more frequent and intense and arriving earlier. On Democracy Now!, climate researcher Chandi Singh of the Indian Institute for Human Settlements noted the injustice of extreme heat hitting the world's poorest people who did not cause the climate crisis but are bearing the brunt of its impact. Historical emitters of greenhouse gases have to step up because we are in countries like India and Pakistan really hitting the limits of adapting to heat. There is a certain limit beyond which humans cannot survive this kind of heat. So it's a deep injustice in that sense. And the heat will likely get worse. It probably won't break until monsoon season arrives in June. The historic heat is already impacting the global food supply, decimating India's wheat and fruit crops, causing prices to spike, and raising the specter of a global wheat shortage following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has already had a devastating impact on wheat supplies. So all of the things you have warned about for so long all seem to be coming true this spring. Sadly, yes. A slew of recently published studies also show how humans are accelerating the rate at which animals and plants are going extinct, faster than previous projections. And a first-of-its-kind comprehensive study of more than 10,000 reptile species around the world, researchers found that more than 20% of all reptiles are now at risk of extinction due to logging and agriculture, decimating their habitats and destroying ecosystems at an unsustainable pace. Mm. In a different study, researchers reported that the world's insects are also in dramatic decline. And that's a bad thing? Yes. Oh. In some areas, overall insect populations have dropped by nearly half in both population and diversity due to the combination of expanding industrial agriculture and man-made global warming. And why is it a bad thing to get rid of all the insects? Because the insects are the foundation of the food web that feeds pretty much everything on the food web above them. Oh, there's that. 
Another study warns that 2021 was devastating for the world's forests. Massive wildfires helped fuel global forest losses in 2021, accounting for more than one-third of the world's tree cover losses just last year. That's the largest share on record. Fires, logging, and expanding agriculture destroyed more than 90,000 square miles of tree cover in 2021 alone. That's an area roughly the size of Oregon. Another new study warns that the man-made climate crisis is pushing Earth's oceans toward a mass extinction event over the next 200 to 300 years. And it will be unlike anything the planet has seen in the last 250 million years when scientists believe up to 90 percent of marine organisms went extinct. However, the researchers say there is some good news. Mass extinction in the oceans can be prevented if humanity shifts away from burning fossil fuels. It's also the best news of the day so far because it's only going to happen 200 or 300 years from now. Finally, a bit of actual good news. Denmark announced a major plan to replace all natural gas heating in homes, investing in a massive initiative to convert about half of the Danish households that still use natural gas to district-wide steam heat over the next six years. The rest of Denmark will be converted to super-efficient all-electric heat pumps, and it will all be done by 2028. Take that, Mr. Putin. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Yes, we are on fire. Uh, But good news there on the heat pumps. That's something we we spoke on this show with Bill McKibben about a few weeks, months. I guess it would be weeks ago. Indeed. You know, the world is heating up, but there are countries, um, not the U.S. necessarily right now, but Denmark at least is moving ahead on electrifying everything, which is pretty much, you know, bottom line, where we need to go. That'll solve it. Thank (laughs) you, Denmark. All right, we got to go. Thanks to my producer, Desi Doy, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We hope we haven't ruined it entirely. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. That service is made possible by those of you who support our work, and we thank you for it by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. You can drop me email as well. Always good to hear from you. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you'll find me. Find me. Follow me there. I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Woo-hoo!